始め Happy New Year. I know uh, this is a little bit belated, but I have been detained. Uh, detained with uh, very exceptional circumstances in which I had to enjoy myself, me and Sergeant Barnes, at a bordello in uh, Saigon City. So we had no choice, you understand? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, serious about bordello, though. But anyway, point being is here. There are many different... Things that have happened, events which are occurring in the modern world um, to hail in 2023. And without further ado, I wanted to give you an update of the Russo-Ukraine war. Now, last time I let you off, there was a battle of Bakhmut. Bakhmut is, again, a logistical supply center that has been the site of a protracted conflict between the Russians and the Ukrainians, um, and it's been a showpiece event of uh, Wagner Group, or Wagner Group, Wagner Group, whatever the fuck they want to call themselves. Any case, um, it's uh, basically very interesting to note uh, that there have been minor firefights between Russian forces and Wagner forces. That's really something, I gotta tell you. That's uh, very interesting. However, the operation in Bakhmut seems to be working. It seems to be that the Russians have actually successfully pinned down um, a stratagem with Sorovikin, the new general in charge of operations in Ukraine. And it seems that it's not Bakhmut itself that is... Um, the site of, let's say, uh, important like uh, military operations, but rather it is a fixing location, um, one intended to draw Ukrainian forces into, have them dug in and cause massive casualties. Now, for instance, um, the Ukrainian advances along the southern front have actually slowed down, and all attacks along the southern front towards uh, Crimea have actually just been faint attacks. And a total of almost 60,000 troops um, are manning the defense of Bahmut, of combat units, right? That's an insane amount. Like, you have to understand that uh, before when this uh, conflict started, it was originally uh, battalion-sized elements duking it out. Which, by the way, for those of you who don't know, it's like 500 to, if you have battalion reinforced, like a regiment, a thousand or so. Now, you have the equivalent of three brigades in that vicinity um, operating and fighting. And it seems that the Russians are not making, although they are taking 
uh, land or territory incrementally, that's not their main emphasis. Their main emphasis is to draw uh, enemy Ukrainian positions out with the focus on trying to make sure uh, that when the Ukrainians reveal themselves, the artillery destroys them. This is what's called destroy by fires. And uh, it seems to be Russian doctrine since the Soviet Union. It's like carbon copy. Very little innovation since then. And um, just as it was in World War II, and it is now, artillery is king of the battle. Um, so that's a very interesting uh, innovation. Um, however, there have been massive casualties. Both Russia and the Ukraine are understating their casualties for obvious political concerns. Um, but the significant um, <laughs> casualty radius has been estimated by, just by, for instance, okay, casualty also includes death and wounds and other stuff that require um, longer treatment. Some casualties can be healed. However, total casualties, like net casualties, which are calculated on a strategic level, on the national level, that uh, incorporates people that are permanently handicapped from combat military service. Um, but in this case, we're counting casualties of people that are temporarily inundated. So what that means is basically, um, you know, a dude that... Uh, got a bullet wound but can you know take a month off and heal and come back so every day the local hospitals are overwhelmed with an estimated around 600 Russian um, casualties um, and on the other side is actually 800 to 900 so it's roughly the same uh, the parity is the casualty parity is roughly the same however um, the difference to what is seeming to make the Ukrainians feel like they're losing is that because the Russian forces are drawing and fixing massive formations in this area, they have been losing a lot of equipment. All this equipment has been, uh, you know, modernized equipment like the T-55, T-62, um, T-72s, uh, which were either captured or taken uh, by the Ukrainian forces, um, they're basically getting picked off, as well as a bunch of Western equipment like MRAPs, APCs, M113s, etc., which are getting whacked. Why? Because armor is not meant to be used in a stationary force, um, you know, uh, position or posture. Uh, that's the the point of the infantry nowadays. Like light infantry and stuff, they're used as uh, defense armor is used as a punch, right? Um, now, now it's the case that because it, it seems as though, so another background here is that there is uh, like three core of 70,000 troops of Ukrainian troops training um, in Western European nations right now uh, to come back and fight, yet they're not there. Um, they will be equipped with the best equipment, etc., now, the troops fighting uh, here in Bakhmut, um, they've had to plug their best units from the Ukrainian forces into Bakhmut to hold Bakhmut because um, of the feeling that if, if Bakhmut fell, what, end up hap what ends up happening is basically a uh, Russian operational 
um, inertial success. And so if they if Bahmut falls, ultimately the whole line kind of crumbles. Um, it's a very weird situation to be in. Um, so basically, the issue has been equipment loss. Um, the Ukrainian equi- uh, equipment, as far as tanks and other armored assets, have been worn down. Now, the Russians don't give a fuck because, at the end of the day, they have a Soviet legacy where they're, they have they have so much equipment. I mean, it's not even funny. It's like, uh, you know, it, it, we estimated their stockpile to be in a certain range. But we can't know for certain because a lot of the time these equipment depots are stored underground in old Soviet fallout shelters as a uh, precaution. And so they have been building tens of these things in the so- uh, during the Cold War, and they've just been waiting. And they're all pretty much operational. Obviously, they need some modernization and some fixing up. Um, but it seems like they've been really useful. So here's the thing. With the Russians, since time eternal, they've been able to absorb casualties. They don't care. And um, even in the circumstance, they're actually getting more bang for their buck than the Ukrainians are. They're, they're incurring more casualties than they're taking uh, or they're, they're costing the enemy. And so from a general's perspective, this seems like a win-win situation because what you're doing is destroying all this advanced westernized equipment that Russian equipment can't, can't handle. Um, you're causing casualties and mangling of the enemy um, at a higher rate than you're uh, getting incurring on your own. Um, additionally to this, there is this, this element uh, where... The strategic picture is that Russia wants to draw all the forces of the Ukraine down south. Now, here's another escalation, an event that's happened. Um, Belarusia has actually seen a significant increase in military equipment and um, training personnel and reservists being called up um, in addition to Russian nuclear forces being stationed at naval, at, excuse me, at air force bases across Belarusia. Now, this could indicate that there is a an impending threat of invasion via uh, Belarusia. However, I personally don't think it's going to happen. I think it's a tact, a way of drawing Ukrainian forces necessarily from, for instance, the southern front to the northern one. I think the main attack from the Russians is going to come from northeast of Kharkov and in a pincer movement uh, separate the Ukrainian Central Command um, along the the axis of the Denver. Now that's all remains to be seen. However, there's also another significant development. So I guess in response to the losses of equipment um, by the Ukrainians as well as the increased equipment, uh, <laughs> I think the the NATO doesn't realize how much stuff the Soviets used to have, and so by proxy the Russians have. Um, And basically, you know, the Ukrainians have been asking for significant armor and armored personnel carrier uh, equipment batches. And before this, we have not really given the Ukrainians um, substantial armor. I think that there have been... There's been 
some German tanks that have been sent. However, those tanks are not, like, um, really top speed. Also, there's an issue with, for instance, the Ukrainians are operating off of uh, primarily a Soviet-based platform, weapon system platform. Now, if we send them, for instance, German tanks that have a totally different chassis, they have a totally different like mechanism and stuff, not only do we have to train them up, but we also need the logistical background or the back chain, uh, which supplies and maintains a tank. Now, uh, for those of you that don't know, the logistical impetus of every single tank or let's say uh, APC or whatever in the military so every for every hour a tank is run it needs six hours of maintenance and that's for what I know the a M1 Abrams uh, kind of the, the general rule of thumb for maintenance now that costs parts that costs time that costs trained personnel and NCOs etc but there's more to that is that you know you, you got to think about the parts that they need and everything. So the cool thing about having, uh, you know, NATO units that were NATO countries that per previously had been part of the Warsaw Pact giving Soviet pattern equipment to the Ukrainians is that they could scrap old Ukrainian parts from tanks that are no longer commissionable or actionable for combat and replace and repair, um, you know, previous t Soviet tanks on top of the fact that they can, they don't need the extra, you know, training for that platform because that platform is already organic to themselves. So there's that issue. However, in the West, there is also the significant uh, challenge that if we give them tanks like a Leclerc, which is the most advanced um, French tank, or at least it's like 1990s parody, uh, or you know, German Martyrs, etc. What's going to end up happening here is an escalation because ultimately Western pattern equipment is like a full deviation better than uh, Soviet pattern equipment. And so, you know, the Russians might see this as an escalation beyond uh, reasonable terms and thus, um, you know, I, it might cause something. I can't even tell what what's the the, the next uh, ante up in this poker game here of chicken. Uh, but we'll see what's going on, and I'll keep you guys posted. But so far, there have been confirmed uh, 50 Bradley IFDs being shipped to the Ukraine. Now, Bradleys are uh, incredibly uh, powerful a weapon system that has uh, two-toed missile launchers on the top it has IR visioning so infrared visioning which is like also used for night vision as well um, it has a command and control center and significant uh, communications capabilities which are essential on the battlefield it has electronics which allow drivers and commanders to uh, keep in constant contact and coordinate together in a modern and efficient way which their Soviet counterparts did not. So sending 50 Bradley IFVs is a significant escalation. I mean, it's it's just so much better than the BMP 2 or 3 that it's like, uh, for the Russians it's, it's, it's kind of a it's not, there's no such thing as a wonder weapon, okay? Because at the end of the day, a Bradley APC is probably going to make 
kill two and take one dead. But the thing is, you have to understand that that's a fo force multiplier that over thousands of iterations, what ends up happening is giving an edge to the Ukrainians to the point where it has a strategic effect, right? Um, on top of that, there are 100 AMX 10RC uh, tanks, which are not technically tanks. They're they're called light reque uh, tanks, which are basically... Um, I don't know if you've seen this in the Marine Corps. There's called this thing called a LAV, um, but it's a it's a wheeled vehicle. But instead of a 30 millimeter bushwhacker on top, which is an automated cannon, it's actually a 125 millimeter smoothbore, uh, basically a tank cannon, right? Just for those that you that don't know. And so, I don't. I don't personally think that these weapon systems are incredibly effective. They're from the 1970s and 80s. Uh, French uh, depots, storage depots, uh, they're used as parachuters and stuff like that. They've been used in the operations in Mali, um, and even RPG-7s have been shown to be effective against this weapons platform. So I don't think it really has anything to do with um, the significance of this specific weapons platform. However, I will say this, that if the, the, there will be a mental seal that is broken once NATO forces send NATO like equipment that is pretty good. It's only a smaller increment until you know we send we send them M1A1 Abrams, like the first iteration of tanks, steel tanks, or um, you know. I mean, like I said, like the Leclerc's, the tanks are important. However, like there are things like IFVs that are a game changer as well. Um, obviously, we've already sent them javelins and laws, etc. Uh, but we are sending them things that have more and more um, strategic effects, especially these Patriot missiles that are happening in the high Mars. Now, uh, continuing on, I think. The possibility that Belarus is going to open up another front is really just a feint. Maybe they enter hostilities, but I don't believe that they have any intent on marching on Kiev. Why? Why? Because the on a map you can't see it from afar, but Ukraine and Belarus are separated by a natural barrier called the Pripyat March Marshes, and part of the failure. Um, of the initial Russian assault onto Kiev airport, which is immediately um, proximate to the Belarusian border, is that once the the Air Force um, air assault units actually took the airfield, the VDV, by the Russians, they weren't able to follow up with an assault. Why? Because they had to the the reinforcing element uh, was bottlenecked and basically effectively, let's say, contained for their advance and could not reach the advanced units of the VDV uh, simply because of the fact that there is only there are only few ways of approach which otherwise are inaccessible so they, can, they can't go through the fucking marshes and shit with you know heavy equipment they would get lost and so I think what's going to happen is like this is a kind of prediction for this year is that maybe there will be some um Attacks, some infiltration. Belarus might be officially um, a partner to the the conflict. However, there will be no significant uh, significant advances into uh, the Ukraine uh, because of the fact that it will only be used as a fixing uh, operation to keep Ukrainian forces spread thin, 
so that way there's this big punch that comes from the east above Kharkov, like I said, that will be a pincer movement, and will probably... I Honestly, okay, here's the other thing, too, is that there is those two-man corps of 200,000 troops of Russians training right now. So it's kind of like a, a game of chicken of who can train faster. This uh, Ukrainian force that's in the west training in England, or this Russian force training immediately proximate to the battle zone um, which is significantly larger however it's probably not going to be as well trained and it probably won't be as well ammunitioned or decked out and all the Gucci stuff that we're going to give the Ukrainians it is likely it is likely that if this assault from the east fails to have any decisive effect and if the NATO forces um, up there personal presence in the Ukraine it is likely that Russia will settle for a Pyrrhic victory of just ceding whatever they have as kind of like a uh, armistice line now uh, if it is successful I believe if that assault from Russia into Kharkov is successful I think it is incredibly likely that the country east of the Deniper will be um, ultimately, you know, the demarcation of of what Ukraine, like Russia, will call for a ceasefire. I think any further, how do you say, any further development of this conflict, aiming to see, you know, to take over the rest of the country, would be logistically probably impossible, and secondarily, it would be a little bit too much of a provocation for the NATO troops uh, especially the Poles um, and so it is entirely likely that eastern Ukraine will be ceded at that time and maybe there will be operations for Odessa in the best case I really doubt anything will go past that now moving on uh, let's say here oh and the last event that I'd like to say is that it seems as though um, the training... It, it seems like the thing is that infantry... How do you say this? In the West, we place a lot of emphasis on training infantry for them to be actually combat capable and uh, um, capable of offensive operations. Now, the Russians seem to be using infantry, of course, as occupying forces as the ability to take ground and fight the enemy. However, it seems like they're primarily a fixing force and that the primary mode of destruction is destruction by artillery fire. So, destruction by fires, right? Destroyed by fires. And the Western doctrine is um, destroy by maneuver, right? So by cutting off logistical supply lines to the point where entire pockets of enemies um, give up. And to bring to mind, it's basically what the Germans did in the early Second World War, where they would, you know, pincer movement all the way around in Russia and basically cut off entire armies of men. Uh, from logistical supplies and make it untenable to defend and therefore cause them to capitulate and surrender 
without many casualties compared to, you know, uh, attrition warfare. So one's an emphasis on maneuver, and the other is an emphasis on attrition. Now, it seems like the Russians have really stepped up their recruitment of the prison population. Uh, to, somehow there are a lot of Africans being used as uh, conscripts uh, for the Wagner group, um, and they're just used as cannon fodder. It's insane. Like, I saw this video on Telegram of, of just, like, it wasn't human wave type. Um, obviously they were dispersed in a you know, uh, what's called a skirmisher's line, and they were advancing slowly, but it seemed like they didn't really know what they were doing, and it seemed like they weren't really well equipped, and once they were bogged down and fixed in position from superior fires from the enemy, from the Ukrainians, effectively a lot of them sustained like 50% casualties in that one video, and basic, but, but then at the end of the video what happens is Russian artillery comes and it just annihilates where the hell the uh, Ukrainians were shooting from, so it's it's really it's morbid and interesting at the same time. It's very macabre, but I'll keep you posted, gentlemen. Uh, right now, that is all I have to report. Uh, today, I would like for you to take a look at one of these guys um, for a battle maps. It's called Asian Defense Policy. You should check it out. Um, and I'll link a description of their YouTube channel below. They have an interactive map uh, that will help you appraise yourself of the situation of conflicts and of places around uh, the battle space. Thank you. Let's uh, transition here. After this song, I have a surprise. Снежная дорога по несчастной Чечне. Этот страшный сон нам не забыть никогда. 
и металлозвон Запомним мы навсегда Запах крови смерть и тот ужасный позор Ни Аллах, ни Бог нам не простят наших ссор С болью по дороге снежно едем домой Все, кто чудом выжил, кто остался живой Чечне so much blood yes you will be the great Khan of Khans descendant of Genghis Khan these are the words of the shaman who saw the future of Roman von Ungern Sternberg now decades before he was who he was the preeminent enemy Kalki incarnate against the red threat he was just a little boy in Graz, Austria I love Ungern Um, he is a personal great first of all personal character a martial character probably Mars incarnate Kalki or at least a prophet of Kalki right a great destroyer and purgator of communism and uh, I firmly believe, firmly believe that I am his descendant, spiritually speaking. Now, uh, the origins. Let's get back here to this original Colonel Kurt, Kurt, excuse me, of Apocalypse Now, right? He is the real life version of this. Uh, he was actually born um, in Graz, Austria, in the turn of the century. So he was born in 1886. Um, in fin de siècle Europe, right? And Europe at this time is is it was as it is now, right? It's like it's it's fucking lame and and very effeminate, very bourgeois, which is one and the same thing. And ultimately, what ended up happening, it it, it just it, it it meant nothing. There was this era of great liberalism and. 
and happiness and all this lame stuff and revolutions and killing people and their betters and and all the slave masses rising up like the disgusting beings that they are. Ugh! I'm so disgusted. But he was born during the time that this was all changing and that there was a transition from this stupid, sentimental, romantic period of Europe into a what is in the German sphere, the Volkish uh, kind of movement, um, and in other places it was a, it was called like a theosophy or Ariosophy or, or whatever the hell it's called. But the thing is, um, people were searching for means of spirituality which were more genuine and outside of these controlled bug bugman institutions which preach constant peace and love thy neighbor all this hippy dippy bull crap right it's all communism anyway um he was born there graz in austrian hungarian empire he has no memory of that because immediately um he, he so there's this concept called the reich deutsche right which is basically people who are of the general German sphere who are German themselves that live abroad that are not in the German sphere so Graz is technically outside of the traditional German homelands and uh, ultimately speaking um, you know he would move his dad would get a job in Russia um, as an administrator which is actually kind of in line with uh, the Russian tradition since Peter the Great in fact Peter the Great actually imported a crap ton of Baltic uh, Germans to run important infrastructure and to create the first industrial base in Russia because I mean we know, we know how Germans are spurgy and they're like very detail oriented and for whatever reason everywhere they go they're like little dwarves that make gold and stuff and so ultimately there's a significant uh, German community um, in Russia I think even to this day Unfortunately, World War II saw really bad things happen to them, and that really is terrible. But either way, the truth remains. And so basically his parents relocate um, early on basically to uh, Tbilisi, Georgia in 1890. And mind you, it's very interesting how he would cross paths with Stalin. Stalin is from Tbilisi, Georgia, and he was on scholarship at a private school that was run near the governate, and people like him would ru- you know, rub shoulders. Now, Stalin's a little bit older than uh, Roman von Ungern-Sternberg was at that time, uh, and they probably never saw each other, but it's very funny that like in this nexus of a frontier post, let's say, of the Russian Empire, they set, happen to cross paths, two titans of history. Now, uh, moving on, basically his dad dies and his mom remarries. He goes to the Baltic countries uh, and spends his entire boyhood in Estonia. Now, Estonia, just for the record, is like, it's a place, so, so it's Estonia Latvia and Lithuania, and these estates were called the uh, Western Lands or Estland um, by the Imperial Governorate, and they were operated as one province. Now, 
the, there was a significant German community there all the way through World War II, and I believe it still continues to this day, uh, because of the crusading history and ultimately emigration to these lands of the Baltic lands, um, which ultimately are also where the majority of the Junker class was made. Um, now, he was the son of a Junker. His stepfather was uh, an individual who um, was of wealthy means. He lived on a mansion with a state, with servants. And uh, just being the way Germans are, and part of the Junker ethic, uh, his father would actually work, had his own industry, etc., sell you know his crops, market, etc. And, and it was part of this old world. And I th- I'm assuming it made a lot of difference. And um, he wasn't into this whole like book learning thing. And a lot of of aristocratic boys aren't. In fact, if you're a virile man, it's very difficult as someone with boundless energy to go out and uh, just be in a book, uh, like a, a be a shut-in. And so he spent a lot of his time, uh, you know, writing, hunting, doing all these things aristocratic boys usually do, and uh, had private tutoring lessons. Now, it's apparent he never really did too well at school. Uh, it's probable that it's mostly because of the fact that he just hated school. Um, and, and at school, he actually got a reputation for bullying, and then also bullying the bullies. He was just the primarch of violence. Um, and uh, so that's just an early indication of his ar- aristocratic virtue, of his ability to be a warrior, to take pain and inflict pain, you know? So it's very interesting origin story. Uh, It's interesting that so many momentous figures come from this specific warrior land. Um, But time went on. He got to the point where he was like 15 or 16 and he was just too much. And so ultimately he was sent to um, the St. Petersburg Military Academy. And just to give you a feel of what turn of the century Russia was like, nationalism was taking its uh, hold over countries of Europe and everywhere else. Um, And so what it used to be is that in Russia, the administrative language obviously was Russian, but in day-to-day it was French. It was very aristocratic that way, uh, cosmopolitan. Now, due to the nationalistic impulses of the time, Russian was being enforced and people were being russified and in other places like in America it was anglicized or uh, or americanized whatever whatever you want to call it german it was germanicized etc this is feeling of of greater russia to build the satellite peoples of their country into um, russian subjects to be at least culturally uh, russian um, if not ethnically so. Now, the that was a significant issue because Roman actually primarily spoke German and then he also spoke uh, Estonian, right? Or Latigian, or I forgot what it's called, the, the, the term, but basically he was not very well versed in Russian and had to learn from scratch, which is actually a very funny situation. It's like having been raised in the United States and only speaking Spanish. Oh, wait. That's like basically America right now. <laughs> Ridiculous. But any case, um, so effectively he didn't do too well. 
um, there was enforced uh, theology school, and he he liked religion class, but it was too uh, cookie cutter, right? Too much rote memory and stuff. Anyway, long story short, at this military institute for kids, um, basically the majority of the emphasis was on discipline. So discipline every day, getting up, you know, marching around, uh, doing drill, doing reveille, uh, basic infantry drilling skills, and with an emphasis on unquestioning obedience to orders. Now, of course, this is extremely important as a military man. However, uh, one of the most important or difficult things to admit is that it is incredibly boring and you probably want to watch paint dry on a wall <laughs> instead of doing this stuff every day, day in, day out. Monday through Saturday, and on Sunday you go to church. But in any case, um, so that was his boyhood, and he did not do well. He failed with flying colors. He got straight Fs, and ultimately was sent back uh, home to Estonia to a lot of his uh, personal dismay and to the dismay of his family who were severely disappointed at him. But luckily for him, fate intervened. And the second Russo-Japanese War had broken out, out in Manchuria, and he immediately takes the initiative and enlists, heads out, and sees the wider world. Young Roman von Ungern Sternberg. And so... He gets the uh, acceptance of his stepfather, who was his nominal legal guardian, because uh, back in sane times, we don't let women raise children, because that is absolutely stupid. But anyway, let's see here. Bop, 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 bop. Okay. There we go. So, he gets to Manchuria, and uh, effectively, you have to remember that back, back then, borders between, you know, nations weren't as solid so it was kind of like a drifting borderlands which denoted the boundaries of a nation and so battlefields would be fought in what was actually King China right? Q-I-N-G China however it would be fought between Japanese forces and Russians or it would be fought you know, in Vladivostok or it would be fought in Korea or northern Korea at that time and uh, Port Arthur, etc. And so, a lot of this give and take happened. And I have to remind you that the Russo-Japanese War was per perhaps it, it turn of the century Victorian warfare um, is dystopic in a way that you probably don't understand. Not in a condescending way, by the way, but like in in the modern era, we talk about Ukraine all the time, and you see like oh waves of Russians, you know charging into gunfire or whatever. Well, that's not really true. It's an exaggeration. However, let me tell you the difference. Is that the Victorian era saw a transition from the original Napoleonic, you know, standing in the line and then marching up to your enemy and then waiting to or fire until you're ordered and then fire in volleys, right? Now, the Victorian era was still transitioning, um, so the first squad, modern squad tactics, for instance, uh, cover and fire, uh, buddy rushes, stuff like that, things that you learn in basic infantry school, um, which, by the way, for those of you who are civilians and don't know, a buddy rush is basically a two-man pair, uh, effectively lay down fire, one lays down fire while the other maneuvers 
either charges forward or pivots or retreats, etc. It's called bounding movements. Um, and basically, this can be scaled up. So buddy on buddy, individual on individual, or fire team on fire team, which is four men doing it for both teams, correct? And then finally platoon, company, battalion, etc. Uh, I think at battalion is where it ends. Um, and basically, that's where the operational level kind of starts. Now, in the Victorian era, especially in countries uh, such as Russia, which were technologically less advanced, especially in military aspects, um, they were stuck in this semi-holding pattern, which is, uh, you should see like these like Russian bayonet uh, drills where columns of men in like semi-loose formation, but in line, uh, would walk across a plane towards the enemy, walk straight up. <laughs> like, I'm not exaggerating. They would walk under fire and not seek cover and basically the the officer would be in front with the sword and the guys in the back would be up with their rifle and just walking at a position held by an enemy. And by that time people were, you know, doing shallow uh foxholes and entrenchments etc and like it was it was this way between both the Russians and the Japanese give and take it was insane and the casualty um, the casualties from the battlefield were high but it's not the, the deaths from the battlefield that are extremely high it's the deaths from medical malpractice even by the standards of the time of um, failure in logistics, failure to give proper medical treatment to individuals, and treating um, basically all pain with opium, which causes huge addiction problems if you survive, but if you don't survive, it actually causes issues with um, if you administer a dose that is too high um, with uh, your cardio, uh, cardiovascular system, etc. And so, without getting too bogged down, I want you to understand it's just a mud slog. And uh, being in the infantry or the artillery or whatever um, in the land forces of an army, there's a reason why there's this connotation that army people are stupid. It's because ultimately the only people that you could get to go into the armed forces of the army were themselves the kind of the trash heap, the rejects of the world. And uh, it's an unfortunate take. I love military stuff. I love, you know, soldiering and stuff. And I kind of take, I, I take this blandishment with some resentment. But I would say this, it, it is kind of true, unfortunately. Um, but for this time, obviously. I don't think it's true for every time and especially not true for now. Now, this is the scene that Roman comes into. He serves as a corporal in an infantry regiment, uh, does the thing. He gets actually a medal of valor, well, minor valor, right? Uh, basically uh, for having participated in the campaign, saw action, um, and effectively served his time. And this was incredibly... Oh, and by the way, he served in the 91st Dvinsk, if I pronounced that correctly, Infantry Regiment, and uh, got the service medal, as I said, and basically this was a formative experience. Now, the Far East was 
entrancing for people all over the world, especially of the legation cities in, in China, uh, the great powers everywhere. Um, but it was a place where east and west crossed, right? Like, especially the Russian borderlands where, you know, the Russians are Europeans and they would go over into China and, and then it was very, you know, traditionally Chinese before the communists uh, took power and, you know, the Japanese, etc. And so there was this huge, like, crossover in ethnic layers. And if you're not familiar with Dugan, I think a lot of Dugan's thought comes from this time of this Eurasianism or whatever, where it's this blend of, like, European and Asian elements. Um, That's not my personal conviction. I'm just giving you background just for the record here. Now, what's interesting is that Roman here develops his spiritual um, beliefs here as well. He's very um, interested in theosophic circles. Uh, he's interested in you know, uh, traditional Confucius and Buddhist um, religions held by his uh, basically compatriots. He is interested in the Lutheran upbringing of his background as well as the Orthodox etc. And so there's this just giant mesh of spiritual um, inspiration which he was exposed to um, as well as a larger cultural context outside of Europe himself and on top of everything he became enamored with the idea of the Mongols and with himself as a military man now he returns kind of an older more mature man more disciplined and he decides he knows what he wants to do and he goes and basically goes and into a, a military academy, which breeds young officers. It's a little bit longer than what we're used to today. It's like six years or something like that. And so ultimately he does that, right? And uh, he actually did pretty well for someone that consistently got Ds and Fs. Uh, in his academic career, he pulled a solid C and B minus average, which indicates that he has, you know, intelligence just, just sounds like after years and years and years of not studying, it kind of takes its toll in atrophying your brain. He basically graduates with high military marks, so there's like, a, you know, there's academic marks, military marks, which are like discipline, um, boxing, all this kind of other stuff. It's actually kind of cool. I'll, uh, I'll pin a link in the description below of the general curriculum of the Virginia Military Institute at the turn of the century. It's very interesting, and I think it's something that every young boy, even man who hasn't been exposed to it, should just kind of expose to himself um, and do. Now, obviously, he um, there's a theosophic circle that was in St. Petersburg at that time, and he became incredibly involved in it for someone that was a, you know, officer in the imperial army uh which is kind of like it was it was accepted but it was apparently kind of weird how much he was involved in it next uh he graduated and was assigned uh well he was assigned to the tashkent cossacks right and the tashkent so that's if you remember the the russian empire had so you know those Central Asian countries: Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Kyrgyzstan. Um, Uzbekistan. I, if I've missed anyone, please forgive. Forgive. But uh, basically, that entire region was conquered by the Russians, and part of northern Afghanistan. Now, 
Tashkent was the significant posting of an Imperial Frontier post, like Tbilisi was in Georgia, and uh, that's where a lot of the military operations against Persia and the British in Afghanistan and India took place from. Now, uh, you know, Russians with Attitude is a podcast that has good Russian history about this. There's this whole story about how the city of Tashkent actually was taken. It's very cool. But I'm not going to go into detail here because this is about my favorite anti-communist. Now, he chooses, chooses instead to go to the Transbaikal uh, Cossacks, which the Transbaikal is where... So there's a, there's a place called Lake Baikal, and that's located dead center north of Mongolia. If you look at a map, it's huge. You can't miss it. Now, to give you context... The Cossacks are a military institution or caste. People think, okay, people make a mistake in the East or the, excuse me, in the West to say that they're an ethnicity or whatever. Like, for instance, we talk about Russians and Cossacks, modern Cossack societies, etc., of individuals who are Cossacks uh, fighting for the Russians. Now, like, it it really kind of isn't and is. So, you kind of see this in the American military where uh, generation after generation of individuals like live in these communities and then they're, they, they reproduce and their sons serve and their daughters marry other Cossacks and etc. And so what happens generation after generation is this new formation of a, of a people, of an ethnos, right? And Originally, like Cossacks, don't just come from Slavs, even though a majority of them do. Um, they're also Buryats and Mongols and, and hell some King Chinese and some Manchus and and you know Germans and whoever was in the imperial domain serving in the Cossack detachments. The Cossacks are kind of like, and they're different from the infantry, right? Because the Cossacks are. They're like rangers, um, and their purpose was to maintain the frontier on horseback um, and be self-sufficient, right? It was like Peter the Great's innovation to do to to provide a self-sufficient force that was frontier-oriented um, and that was self-sustaining and cheap on the budget. You know what I mean? And the the Russians have always been plagued with logistical issues and financial issues, so this is one of the innovations. And so this is the environment that Roman comes into. This is the place where he earns his stripes, and he loves it. He loves it. He spends all his time. He was not a very good officer in the sense that he didn't do what all the uh, the weesh, small chins, you know, officers wanted to do. Is basically sit and have galas and dance and all this kind of fucking bourgeois crap that was happening in the turn of the century. No, he was a real warrior. You know what he did? He spent all his time with his regular men, picking fights, drinking, you know, banging whores, doing all this cool stuff, living a raw and real soldier's life. And that was, you know, the the, the thing that stood out to me about Rome, uh, Roman himself, but also my experience in the military, is that a lot of the guys that were actually good soldiers tended to be of this way. Now, don't don't confuse it, okay? Right? Like, just because it is the case that this guy did it doesn't mean necessarily that you're a bad soldier if you do not do it. 
or not bad warrior. And vice versa. Just because you do these things doesn't mean that you're a good soldier. But I'm just saying that the trend is there that I have noticed that there's a correlation between the two. Why? I My, my personal suspicion is that high testosterone tends to lend itself to exploits like this. Um, but this is getting a little bit too far. This is no big deal, though. However, in one of his early duels uh, with another cavalry officer, so back then there was a duel, if you were felt offended or whatever, you just fucking duel to the death. No, you wouldn't duel to the death. It would duel to first blood or until uh, someone um, asked for mercy or something like that, which was hardly ever. And uh, effectively, he, he landed a... a brain injury for the rest of his life had excruciating headaches like blinding headaches and a significant departure from uh, his, his mood changed and like he was already a dark figure beforehand now he was just incredibly cruel or crueler since then and so it became more severe and, and obviously probably part of the reason why is because he was feeling constant pain right now Anyway, uh, he enjoys his time, and then suddenly, you know what happens. 1914 comes around, and the first Great World War occurs. Isn't that crazy? And so, immediately, um, he is assigned to the West and fights in the campaigns against Austria, and then later against the Turks. I'm not going to go too deep into it. However, it is to be noted that during this war, Roman becomes comes into his own. He wins various medals of valor and courage and ex- outstanding initiative, etc. Uh, w- he earned the equivalent of the Medal of Honor um, fighting for uh, the Russian Tsar against the Austrians. Uh, basically, oh, and by the way, the cavalry units of the Russian army would suffer, I think, 60% casualties compared to the 30% casualties of the infantry. And he was always leading from the front. Uh, In fact, he was noted for being the kind of guy that was exceptionally brave and would volunteer for insane head-on attacks on entrenched positions from horseback. And uh, that's just... I mean, it's incredible to me but you have to understand how crazy it is. I don't know if you guys have watched this. Uh, All Quiet on the Western Front. Uh, again, if you read anything from World War One, please do not read the defeatist All Quiet on the Western Front. It is lame. But the recent movie by Netflix gives you a background as to what combat was like. Uh, obviously from a defeatist's eyes. However... I would say this, that it, it is very interesting to see, like, you know, the, the way that machine guns were employed, artillery, how kind of dystopic it was after a time, how muddy things could get. And that was true on the Eastern, um, on the Eastern Front. Um, especially the Russians suffered from a lot of logistical issues. So there was a standardization, standardizi- standardization, Jesus, of forces and equipment and material on the German side. Again, that, that God-given spurred talent of mechanization, etc. Now the Russians <laughs> were stuck with a whole milieu of rif- rifles and calibers and ammunitions and this and that. And so what ends up happening is that, yeah, you might have a rifle, but you don't have ammunition for that rifle. Alright, you, you need to, you know what I mean? Like, 
there are so many issues that a lot of the time uh, units couldn't fight because there wasn't a standard um, issue, right, across the, all of the military forces. Now, he wins, and he, he kind of... All this stuff happens, and a lot of the the elements that were causing the collapse of the Russian Empire were being brought to a head, um, and ultimately the revolution, the 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 Red Revolution, right, happens against the Tsar. He's deposed uh, by the Bolsheviks, and ultimately at at uh, people like Lenin sue for peace with the Prussians, and the Prussians sign an armistice in 1917. And you have to remember, Roman von Ungern-Sternberg, people say reactionary or conservative. This is a slander, okay? Never call yourself a reactionary, a traditionalist, a conservative. That's a losing mindset. He was an idealist, okay? He was a spiritual idealist, and that is the, the main difference between left and quote-unquote left and right, right? Which is really the below and the above. <coughs> One is an emphasis on material, and the other is the emphasis on spiritu- spiritualism. And now, he was a huge proponent of the Tsar. He supported the Tsar, even in his, um, let's say, abdication and um, basically his uh, incarceration at his home residence. Um... And effectively, so in the Russian Revolution, remember, and you should read this book. It's called The Russian Revolution by Sean McMiggan. He is this professor at Hillsdale College, great college, uh, very, um, you know, how do you say, just ubermensch, you know what I mean? It's an ubermensch titan of history. However, he kind of exposes the lie of the Soviets and the communists. And now, there are two revolutions that happen in Russia, right? The one in 1917, which deposes the Tsar, and with the leadership of Stolypin, um, becomes a republic, or nominally so. And then, roughly five, four or five years later, 1920, um, parliamentary disagreements become conflicts, armed conflicts. And these armed conflicts become a second revolution, the Red Revolution, right? And so the communists are an issue, and then later after the story I'm going to tell you, there was a third revolution, which is the Bolsheviks versus the Mensheviks. So one was deposing the Tsar. The second civil war, which we're about to go into, is the Whites, which compose of liberals like Stolypin, all the way to like hardcore monarchists like Roman von Ungern Sternberg against a coalition of communists and socialists which includes both Bolshevik and Menshevik factions and then once the white army loses then there's a third which the Bolsheviks annihilate the Mensheviks and effectively create the Soviet Union under Lenin and then finally Stalin now that's a lot of inter- like information for a time that is in the future. I'll do a review of these events later. Uh, but let's return here to the story. Now, during this time of upheaval and peace, or quote-unquote peace, uh, Roman decides to return to Adaman Semyonov um, headquarters down in Tbilisi, and that's where they chill. They hang out there until roughly, effectively, the second 
Russian civil war breaks out and the attempt to reimpose the Tsar onto the Russian Empire, etc. And uh, effectively, Semyonov, who is the army general, um, he assigns Roman to go back to Transbaikal um, to raise a Cossack troop, Oriental, I think it was the Manchurian Division, and effectively raise foreign element uh, forces, so Mongolians, Buryats, Manchu, etc., into a fighting force to fight on the behalf of themselves to go and attack the Soviets, <coughs> or rather the Reds, right, at this time. Oh, and remember, there's an American expedition called the uh, 1917 uh, Polar Bear Expedition to help stabilize and fight off the communists in Vladivostok. People don't know this. 10,000 Americans fought in that kind of civil war. It's pretty interesting. Now, he continues, and he kind of breaks discord. Um, as the work progresses, things are very one-sided. Um, the Bolsheviks have massive support from the lower classes, which far outnumber the aristocracy and so on. It's a big slave revolt, right? That's really what it is. It's a slave revolt. And um, Roman decides, you know what, okay, this is probably not making sense, so what he's going to do is attack into Mongolia, which was nominally a dominion of King China, and reimpose the nationalist Mongolians' Khan, Bogdakan, I think it was the 8th Khan, the living Buddha, uh, back onto the throne, which he does successfully, and with great panache, and basically um, annihilates a superior Chinese element defending that city. And I mean, he completely uh, takes it by surprise, and uh, it's funny because the majority of that garrison that had defended uh, against Rome and had actually deserted before he had engaged them in combat. Now, like we all know the uh the fighting standard of the the Han Chinese it's very low but like that is that's still incredible feat you know being outnumbered 10 to 1 is a pretty incredible feat now moving on he takes over reimposes the Khan reimposes the Buddha um takes on a special smock i'm sure if you've seen a lot of uh the how do you say uh, the depictions of Roman, he's in this smock, which is an oriental smock as a brigadier general, and his standard, you should see his standard, it is really cool, it's like symbols of both orthodoxy and, you know, Hinduism and Buddhism and, and, and all kinds of Eastern mysticism and stuff like that, and it's all into one thing, which is almost schizophrenic, but it's actually beautiful, you should see it. And uh, effectively, during his time in Buryat, he consulted a shaman who said those words to him um, at the beginning of this segment here. Um, and basically, it kind of inspired him, and he, he believed himself to be the descendant of Genghis Khan. And fun fact, to this day, there's a huge, huge statue of Roman von Ungern-Sternberg in Mongolia. The Mongol Mongols love him. And what ends up happening... Uh, is is basically he takes control of the Mongol state for about a year or two um, as the Grand Dutch Duchy or the Grand Duchy of Mongolia, um, and he makes constant raids and attacks upon uh, Red forces, communist forces coming from the north. And at that point, the war had really waned on. 
the white forces had effectively retreated in the west, and it was kind of a rear guard operation going on. Um, it was really kind of sad, honestly. But he fought anyway, and he had a, a deep belief in his convictions and stuff. So much so that he actually gave a series of orders. Um, it's called a general order. And he spoke to the men and told them, for instance, that there would be no quarter, that this was an ex- existential conflict, which couldn't be um, negotiated with. The end, this is like the end times, very millenarian, very... I'll, I'll uh, link a description of the speech below. It's pretty long, but it's very interesting. But it comes into play because he imposed a lot of harsh discipline on his men with floggings and stuff like that, and also flogging his officers, was, which was completely unheard of. You don't flog officers. And, uh, you know, exposing them to cold as, like, spiritual... Uh, tests and missions and then like you know just being uncompromising and incredibly harsh and uh, for instance when he took over Buryat, uh, not Buryat I think it was Ulaanbaatar there was like a Jewish community um, and effectively he ordered the mass liquidation of uh, this populace uh, which unfortunately was not a strategically smart move because those individual Jews that were there obviously that ethnic group is the catalyst of communism in general however in this specific case they had felt the the repercussions of their brethren's initiatives you know lenin is a jew um and basically were the main financiers of the czar and now it was a misstep but anyway he he freaking kills them all and he does that a lot to all commissars and all avowed communists. He just liquidates them. He kills them. And this is probably the smartest move you can make, um, especially when you're dealing with communists, because there, there really is no reprogramming someone. Once someone is a communist, they have revealed themselves to be HIV positive. You know what I mean? Like, that person has AIDS. Like, there is nothing you can do to protect them. <laughs> They're just You just have to eliminate them like a cancer. Now... A lot of people give him a lot of shit about his like harsh tactics and stuff, but you have to understand that the martial tradition is this way. It is to be harsh on your men because at the end of the day, you're killing other people. You're running into a wall, and so you have to be, you know, the rock in the hard place. If you want some someone to be going through a hard place, you have to be a wall. You have to be a rock, and that's what Roman was as a general. But of course, a lot of like soy weesh mode freaking idiots chose to like, you know, I don't know, resent him. And that's another issue as a commander. You have to balance the performance of your unit, their motivation, with how far you can push them. Because some horses can take being prodded on a little bit better than others, right? Just like a horse. If you, if you kick your spurs in too hard and too often, you're going to get kicked off at some point. So you got to learn when to rule back, when to go forward, when to push hard, when to pull back. And Roman was always hard, man. He was like on Viagra, you know what I mean? Like this guy just had no off switch. So effectively, he led his campaign, and you have to imagine it's like an ever small, 
decreasing circle until finally he is left with a strategic nullity. And the, the you know, the Bodkan was overthrown by the communist Mongol Bugmen, and so he finally thought to himself, he this is a literal mission, his last mission that he he uh preached to his troops, or he didn't really preach, but he uh briefed his troops or his officers, which was to lead an expedition down to Tibet for reinforcements. I I don't even know like that is crazy. I mean you can't say anything because, like, this guy was literally fighting a millenary in battle, and after a while, it takes its toll. You know, I can't, I can't blame the guy, but this guy literally believed that, and that was the point where his officers and all his men were like, "That is a insane, and b hopeless, and c you have to cross Gobi Desert, <laughs> and then d like our cause is already lost. The war, th- this was like such a final last stand moment." That ultimately his men betray him. They pay, uh, they're bribed by the Soviets. And funny enough, the Mongols that betrayed him and gave him over to the Russians, um, to the, rather, the communists, because they're not even people, right? The communists, they were superstitious because they believed that if they killed him, that they would be haunted for life by this man because he had such spiritual and strong Buddhistic forces on his side. That's, I mean, that's pretty impressive to me. But anyway, long story short, he gets to Siberia. He lasts a week. They do a whole show, show trial. It's bullshit. And what I respect the most about Roman is that he went down like he lived. He did not give a damn, and he recanted nothing and fought to the end, even in his show trial. And effectively kind of like talked down to these petty peasants. Disgusting. Anyway, this is just a short story of a man whom I deeply admire and who possibly informed the the character of Colonel Kurtz. But this guy lived in real life. And there are many stories of other guys that are roughly the same, but none stick out to me like this Russian Imperial officer who was loyal to the very end and who fought for something that was beautiful and good and just. But I think that's a little bit too far going on right now, and I think I definitely need to wet my whistle with some Jim Beam. Sergeant Barnes, put on that track. Я косынку завяжу в узелок потуже И пойду на прополой под свинцовой стужей Зашагаю по земле себе раковказкой С автоматом на ремне рядом с братом Сашкой Впереди чабанмахи, там оплот хатама Здесь за нас боевикам Доларах награда Рано утром под горой Смыла вверх ракета Длился бой за высоту С ночи до рассвета Продвигаясь по селу Штурмовые группы Расстилали по земле 
террористов трупы, но неправду говорят, что все пули дуры. Здесь бессмертие свое, пацаны шагнули. Там земля под игорьком, там земля под игорьком. На дымы вдруг стала и Алёшка пять лет покупателя. Не забудем никогда. Сашку Соловьёва не нажат, не отошёл, он держал оборону. Ведь поехав лет врагу, на десерт остался, где он занял высоту, там лежать остался. Не забудем никогда спицы на Сергея, как последние слова он шептал бледнее. Нет, я смерти не боюсь, пусть она боится. Парни, может, это сон, и война нам снится. Но на родину ушли черные тюльпаны. Третий молча за ребят наливай стаканы. All right, gentlemen. Here we are. We're back. I'm just going to wrap up this transmission here and do it very quickly. Now, keep an eye out on this Ukraine-Russia-Ukraine situation. It could be the case that it's nothing, I mean, in the history of history, right? But it could also be the case that it's the precursor to World War III. And what a lame war it would be about the most lame stuff about gay rights in Ukraine. But... That is where we're at, and hopefully we can call for de-escalation and ultimately the destruction of all communist and liberal forces in the, uh, in the world. Now, <clears throat> I don't want to fixate on that too much. I'll continue on. Um, I highly recommend for the, this uh, transmission's challenges, I would say this. Read The Russian Revolution by Sean McMeekin. Again, I'll add a URL where you can find it, <clears throat> is incredibly instructive because it is recent history and it is exactly how the communists are trying to take over the United States or have taken over it uh, and the West. If you arm your brain, that is the most powerful weapon in the world, right? Next, body. I want you to do a farmer's carry for 200 meters with a substantial amount of weight. Now, that depends on your physique. I'm not going to give you a prescribed weight, uh, but simply holding on to something and carrying it like ammo cans is incredibly important, and forearm and grip strength are something that is lacking nowadays and something incredibly useful uh, for all military men. Now, spiritually, I would highly recommend you look into the works of Madame Blavatsky and Theosophy, even if it's just an interest or, um, you know, passing academic interest, 
Uh, the reason being is that this kind of spirituality is such a powerful weapon. Um, and if you can see that the origins of quote-unquote right-wing movements in, from about World War II, etc., they all came from the 1870s and 80s, from these quote-unquote folkish movements, which are, you know, they're not pagan, they're not Christian, they're spiritualist, new age, amalgamum of all things, um, which... Basically, if if they're not solid, if they're it's a dynamic religion and dynamic spirituality, and it's a way that you can anchor your justification, your rhetorical justification, like Roman did, without having someone. um, Because if you present the enemy a static defense, right? Like the reason why Christians lose all the time is because there is a. It's it's just it's so ossified and solid like there's a reason why the communists are able to undermine that position rhetorically speaking is because it's not dynamic it's not alive it's not real you know what i mean it's fake everyone feels like it's fake even the people that want to believe in it believe it's fake you, you know what i'm saying they they believe in it. it it's hard to explain so the most powerful spirituality is that which is not codified and which is not like it, it, it's it's always ephemeral it's always nebulous, right? Um, while if you have something that's like, well, these are the clear... Del- if you're autistic about it, you're going to lose, okay? Stop being autistic. Start thinking about spirituality in a playful way, but with great seriousness. Does that make sense? I don't want to go too far into it, because I, I, I think when you talk about religion, there are, there are three things that... I was taught never to tell your men about or talk to your men about. One is religion, one's women, and something other. Oh, it was like sports or some bullshit like that because people get in like fights about sport ball. Honestly, I'm gonna bully side you if you if you like sport ball nowadays for real. But in reality, though, it's probably a good it's a good um, rule of thumb not to talk about religion to people, especially because it's something that's very easy to lose your men, right? You lose your confidence in them, in you, etc. Because uh, it is something particular to everyone. And ultimately, as a commander, you're not there to dictate every move by them, but instead give them a left and right lateral limit as far as where they want to go. The reason why I bring up religion right now is because of how important it is um, as far as showing how successful Ungern Sternberg was in using it as a, a raison d'etre, uh, a, like a conviction to fight the communists. Like, wh- why is there... Like, for instance, people don't understand that... Uh, wh- why do we fight the communists? Well, if you're not spiritual, you have no backing because the ethos of communism, as they say, is to help every man everyone's going to be happy and all this like lies we know it's a lie it's a front however rhetorically speaking it's strong because what it is is it highlights the that thing which every animal human being like the low type of human being which comprises of 90 percent of humanity quote-unquote what they cherish the most they want peace and they want food and they want they want to be happy and all this lame shit and that's how you motivate them however 
and that's why communism and liberalism are so successful is because they brain virus them with the fact that they say well we're fighting for this and this is the only way and ironically or rather it's actually pretty unironic because it is the only avenue for the masses to achieve this cow-like existence to graze on on grass fields and be happy you know but they all get slaughtered like the cattle like they are they don't realize it until it's too late right useful idiots now as a commander you have to understand that maybe 60% of your men are like this so how do you motivate them with something that's a trump card how do you tell them embrace this pain this mission of pain well you do that by spirituality you you show how communism is fundamentally evil on a spiritual basis how it's basically like uh, taking your 30 pieces of silver it's like being Judas it's like being it's it, it's fundamentally an spiritual circumstance and you know it's true look at our reality now dude look at our, our modern living standards people live for nothing they live for their Netflix shows and 5,000 fucking channels and they live for like clothes and and, and money <coughs> and what and and pussy it's not even and remember it's not women because it's not like they're having kids with these women it's it's putting your phallus in another like it's basically like a like a freaking what's it goddamn called uh, rubber pussy whatever the hell they call it oh fleshlight it's like a fleshlight it's like human fleshlight because women have become insufferable and because people men have become women and and that's the thing is like ultimately I am personally convinced of our spiritual mission and our cause and our, the justness of what we believe because communism in its variety is an existential threat to all life equality and all this kind of stuff is all life you know what is you, you go to a, a hospital and you see a heartbeat and it goes up and down up and down that's what's called the unity of opposites by Heraclitus and then when you flatline right you're dead and yet people think that being equal like a flatline is not a form of death now I really didn't mean to get carried away but like it's important that you instill this ethos not just in others but yourself because it's easy to be deluded into thinking that what you're doing is not important that you're not fighting an existential threat a life denying force the wolf beckons at the door what will you do and it won't come in the form of a wolf the devil is not an ugly man he comes beautifully and he comes bearing gifts of gold power happiness pleasure and all this kind of stupid stuff transitory bullshit stop yearning for the hobbit every time you do that I'm gonna bonk you stop trying to yearn for money for all this kind of stuff go for power go for virtue go for things that matter be a good man no matter the cost a lot of historians look back at Roman von Ungern Sternberg 
with a negative light because they're communists and they see him as a demon. And they're right. We are the communists' demon. But he is a demon of light. He did good things. He annihilated many communists. And I want you to take heart in his story. He's not really well documented, and I think you should read that book uh, about him called The Baron's Cloak. And it is is a critical story account. But in that criticism, I could only see gold. No matter how much bullshit they try to heap on it. Now, I don't want to take it too long, but in the future I'll cover the Russian Revolution in more in depth, and we'll be talking about the Communist Scourge, and about our mission as legionaries. Why we're doing this. Why I'm making this podcast. It's because I fundamentally believe, obviously I care about my people, my own people, right? They're called the Aryans. But I also care about all higher types of humanity. I care about the Mongols too. I care about the Japanese. I care about, you know, the Tibetans, etc. As distinct peoples. And the thing is that what unifies all of us men, titans, is this common threat. The threat of the slave. Of the, the slurry slop of alleged human beings. These people are not even human beings. If you could see that your mission is just bigger, bigger than such a small sliver of your life, you would see that you're capable of making great expeditions like Roman did. You're capable of superhuman strength and morale like Roman was capable of. To defeat the enemy. To defeat the enemies, first it starts by securing the palace of your heart and your spirit and your soul. I firmly believe that those who live their life well, with correct conduct, they are reborn again in a higher caste. And I'm absolutely certain that Roman was reborn, and I am part of his soul. No, that's a little bit of an exaggeration. But I do think he's reborn, and he rides among us. This is General Lance. This is Lance's Legion. Signing off.
Далее жарко будет, даже тень Впрочем, в той тени, где я пока Не слухаю тепло, но я боюсь Пока Мы идут чередом Тень и дым отрепьем Мы в общем весело живем Хотя и дождь за окном Аптитофон сломался Я сижу в тишине, чему я рад Субтитры